If you're a fan of big ideas, debate, and politics, check out our festival partner, Geopolitical Magazine Foreign Policy. A forum for informed debate about global affairs, foreign policy keeps a finger on the pulse of world news and political happenings. Beyond articles that delve behind the headlines via traditional reporting, Foreign Policy has so many other products to offer, ensuring that no matter how you like to engage with eye-opening content, there is a method for you. Check out their free offerings, like Foreign Policy Live, their forum for live journalism, newsletters, and podcasts. And with a subscription, unlock in-depth features and quarterly magazines, including their recently dropped spring edition, All About India. Fans of IAI will love Foreign Policy for more of the mind-expanding, insightful content that they seek. To explore their content, take advantage of an exclusive discount for IAI fans. Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything Foreign Policy has to offer. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, a podcast brought to you by the Institute of Art and Ideas. You may have guessed from last week's podcast that this month at Philosophy for Our Times we're focusing on love, relationships and sex, and how philosophy, politics and science can illuminate this quagmire for us. Jenny, I'm sorry. Don't. Love means never having to say you're sorry. So this week we're talking love, or the narrative of love. So what is it? How does it work and how do we define it? And why is it so important to us across popular culture? Here to help are this week's panellists. Filmmaker, Martha Fiennes. And I think there is a fabric of love that coordinates the cosmos. The chief executive of relationship charity, Relate, Chris Sherwood. Love can almost be a skill. It can be a set of capabilities that we can develop. And lecturer and expert in romanticism at Queen Mary University, Shahida Barry. I think miraculous that we fall in love. It is absolutely miraculous that we ever come to care for another human being to whom we are not genetically related. Robert Rowland Smith hosts. I'm going to ask each of my uh, panellists to set out their stall. And again, very broadly on this kind of polarity, I suppose, between on the one hand, lovers, something uh, chancy that we should just be open to, or on the other hand, something which we can, in some way, I guess, facilitate or manipulate. So I'm going to turn to you, Martha, see where you're coming from. Thank you, Robert. I think being human, I mean, falling in love, romantic love, in, in, in the human condition is extraordinary. It is the most, an, ext an extreme emotion to experience, as I'm sure everyone in the audience will have some experience of it. And it's, it's huge and it's actually very mysterious. I, I tend to think of it as a sort of almost portal to, uh, yes, the ineffable, because I happen to come from a place where I believe that there is a cosmos and I think there is technology in that cosmos. I think there are laws in that cosmos, just as there are laws in this three-dimensional world. And I think that is probably, it is, I mean, I read a lot about Sufism, and I think there is a fabric of love that coordinates the cosmos, and that our experience of romantic love is a kind of subsidiary of that. So I think I, I come from a place of, being, of finding it of compelling and mysterious. I also think that, isn't it Socrates said that the god of love is a, is a needy god? And of course, this is one of the great 
kind of contradictions of being in love is, is the craving that comes with it. And um, of course, actually love ultimately is about giving and it's about a submission. Yes, I think that there are fascinating results in the technology, especially all the online apps and the that we use now to sort of coordinate the processes of courtship, love, uh, and everything that goes with it, which Chris is brilliantly knowledgeable about. I think we need to be very mindful of ourselves in that process. I think that we're given to addiction. Addiction can happen very quickly. It can happen from coffee to alcohol to drugs and certainly to the phone usage. And that's where really, I think the greatest technology, people talk about the brain, I think it's the brain and the heart, and actually I think it's probably the pineal gland, but that's another story. <laughs> okay, thank you, Martha. Let's hear what Chris has to say. Are you feeling cosmic, pineal? <laughs> <laughs> you have to remember in this debate about technology that often we're talking about dating, and dating is actually one chapter in the book of our relationship. And actually, we need to be thinking about love story through that journey of our relationship, because it is the greatest adventure being in a relationship, but dating is one part of it. And we know from our work at Relate, but also from research, that you know people operate in their relationships with, with two schools of thought. There's, there's very much the sort of fatalism uh, aspect, which is rooted in the story from Plato's Symposium and Aristophanes' story, which is almost like it will be right because it's supposed to be right. He's the one, she's the one. And in that kind of aspect of fate, it can often be a passive approach to relationships or one which denudes us of our choice and our agency and our advocacy in that relationship. There's another school of thought, though, um, which is a more developmental school of thought, which is actually in a relationship, we learn and we grow. We, we learn more about ourselves. The I comes into that relationship and we become a we. And actually, if you move on to a new relationship, you take those lessons and that learning and that richness from that more developmental experience. Now, why is that important? It's important because actually, love can almost be a skill. It can be a set of capabilities that we can develop. And secondly, is that we know that people who may operate more on that fatalistic view of relationships are much less likely to seek help when things go wrong. And when people come to an organization like Relate, they've often taken two, five, even seven years to pick up that phone and make that call. So those niggling issues in the relationship can become big issues. Now, the third point I wanted to make about relationships in this context today is that our relationships don't operate in a vacuum. There is a social aspect to it, the influences of the media, of our friends and our relationships. There's a political aspect as well. You know, our government has a view about making it harder for you to get divorced. When I got divorced, I had to have six reasons. And because it was a <laughs> civil partnership dissolution... Do you care to share them with the... <laughs> Actually, I did make them up. I did have, we did make them up. We wanted to get divorced. One of them was that I had called my ex-husband fat because he was um, <laughs> overweight. But we, we, our relationship had come to an end and we didn't want to share our laundry in public. So we created six reasons. And the other one, I was out all evening, which I certainly wasn't. Now, <laughs> now the third I don't need to rerun the whole debate. I know, I know. We did this in a bar in Clapham. There we go. Um, the third aspect of this is economic. You know, there is an economic influence on our relationships. The good old common people song by Pulp, you know, when the wallpaper's peeling off the wall, it's not a great place to be. And it won't surprise you to know that in the Great Recession that we've just been through, if you, were, if you were worst affected by the recession, you were six times more likely to see your relationship break up than people who did well in the recession. 
So our relationships, our intimate relationships, don't operate in a vacuum. These social, economic, and political forces have an influence on them. So that's my stall. Thanks very much, Chris. Shahidar. I'm not going to um, give you the reasons why I'm about to divorce my husband, but um, <laughs> <laughs> he's not in the audience, is he? He's not in the audience today, but he has been, in his words, dragged to this festival. So, um, but this gets me to, to my angle, which is the, so the question was about power in relationships, and I think that in relationships. Um, we exercise power over the people we love, and also we put ourselves in the power of the people whom we care for or who we choose to love. And so, for, so, so for my, to my mind, that means love is an ethical um, situation. It's a place where we model ethical relationships. So um, I, I find Martha's account so alluring, and you're entirely right that love is mysterious and cosmic, but it's precisely for those reasons that love is this profound mystery. It is, I think, miraculous that we fall in love. It is absolutely miraculous that we ever come to care for another human being to whom we are not genetically related. And that means the stakes are really high. We need to understand what happens in a relationship and how we work outward from our relationships to a wider society. And I was going to begin with a quotation from James Baldwin. James Baldwin, he says, love does not begin and end the way we seem to think it does. He says, love is a battle, love is a war, love is a growing up. And I'm so glad you talked about your relationship because I think so much of our conversation is um, defaulted on a, an idea of heterosexual love. And one of the places where we need to think about our ethical relationship is in the ways that we understand gay marriage and civil partnerships. And of course, what's happening in Chechnya at the moment is absolutely terrifying. It's an ethical question. Love is an ethical question. And so to my mind, we need to think about love. That means that love has its reasons. Pascal says the heart has its reasons of which reason knows nothing. But he says the heart has its reasons. And that means it's incumbent on us to think about to think, actually, about love, to not be seduced by the idea that love is irrational, illogical, and spontaneous. The second thing, I think, is that love is not private. We think it is. We think that love is sentimental and self-concerned, navel-gazing, in fact. But how we care about another human being, how we care about the well-being of another person is not a private matter. It is a public matter. Love is a miracle and it's a power and a force that we have to learn to harness. So love is not private. That's my second gambit. You can challenge me. Um, and I think love is a thought as well as a feeling. And we have to enter into a culture where we think, we think thinking is as important as feeling. Um, we talk about losing our heads in love, falling head over heels. But there is also will and commitment and volition in love. And then my final um, thesis, I guess, is I think that love is finite. We talk about love being endless. I'll love you forever and ever. I think I said that to my husband this morning when he was threatening not to come to this event. Um, but uh, love is finite, and it is all the finer for it. So my heroine is Simone de Beauvoir, um, who has a very troubled relationship with Jean-Paul Sartre. And she's beautifully elegant and stoic. And when he dies in 1980, she lives for another six years. But she says of his, his death, she says, his death does separate us. His death does separate us. My death will not bring us together again. That is how things are. It is in itself splendid that we were able to live together in harmony for so long. Isn't that wonderful? Because love is finite. Um, and we need to talk about love as this pragmatic, delimited phenomena, which we treasure and is miraculous, but we have to find ways of harnessing and thinking about in ways that are conducive to the well-being of all of us. So that's where I'll end.
Thank you, Shahida. It also reminds me of Jacques Derrida saying that it's because the other dies that we can love them. Yes. Actually. Uh, anyway, uh, going quite heavy quite soon there. <laughs> um, but very interesting to hear the kind of ethical dimension there too. Um, okay, uh, first question we're going to socialize a bit is this one, whether, whether there remains something about love which is, quote unquote, transcendent, or whether that's an illusion in some way. And I'm gonna, I think I'm going to pick on Chris first, because um, just to wind you up a bit, Chris. <laughs> um, sounds like I'm not sure I'd like to be in the kind of relationships you describe. They sound very hard work. It's all about sort of working at the relationship and being social and all the rest of it. Not a lot of transcendence there. Well, you know, we know from the evidence that people who are in good quality relationships enjoy the best, the best well-being in our society. And I think the point about relationships is that there are fantastic times, but there are difficult times. And I suppose what I'm trying to push back on, though, is the kind of media narrative about what makes a great relationship. You know, the idea that the most romantic thing you can do is book your trip to New York, champagne. I've done that, actually. I've done that. Champagne. Uh, you know, in a you know hotel. how it ended, Chris. You know, Come on. And it ended after, yeah, I got board. Uh, yeah. But, you know, uh, it ended. But the point of it is, is that that is this image that we're fed. But actually, there was a really interesting piece of research from the Open University, which looked at this idea of what makes relationships work over the life course. What are the benefits? What are the joys that come out of a long-term relationship? And actually what that research found was it wasn't the big gestures of the trip to New York. It was the everyday gestures. It was things like bringing your partner a cup of tea in the morning. It was the little notes that you might leave when you go away for the weekend. It's those little everyday gestures that say to somebody, actually, you care and you're thinking about the other person. So for me, it's about... Uh, those everyday gestures rather than the big gestures. And, and you know, the point is, is that relationships bring real joys, but they can be challenges. And you can work and grow through those challenges with each other. But that's why I was making the case for that more developmental view. Because I agree with you, actually, that relationships are public. But actually, we tend to think they're not. We tend to think they're private. But they are public in a way, because you can't contain what's happening in that huge part of your life very easily. We see that, for instance, in the workplace. I'm sure many of us in the room have taken in a sick day because we've had a difficult weekend with our partners. You know, we have um, not been as productive at work as we possibly could have been. Those things do influence us there. But there's also research to show that actually, if we have good relationships at home, we're better able to cope with the stresses and strains of work. So again, our relationships are not in a vacuum is the other point I wanted to make. Cup of tea doesn't sound very cosmic. Martha. Well, I think that your champagne thing, um, yes, this is all about s selling ideas in advertising. It's a sort of software, but because we all know in relationships, it is absolutely the nitty gritty. It's the tiny little gesture and it's full of challenges and difficulties. So you're right. That, that, that's what I come back to the, the mundane process of processing this great mystery um, and living it out in the drama of the uh, incarnation. Um, and I just want to quickly say that I just, this is a language thing, love is not finite, but you meant the relationship, because love is, of course, infinite. Uh, it has to be as a, as a kind of primeval urge, as a, a part of the ordinance of, of the cosmos. But, uh, and of course, the engagement of a, the experience of a relationship um, that one passes through, yes, it will. It, it can have a point of closure, of course. Um, so I just say that. I'm interested. I, I, I'll come back to that point with Shahida in a sec. But uh, I'm interested. You know, when you talk about the cosmos and so on, 
are you wanting us to think that and so on? Yeah. I love it and so on. Cosmos. <laughs> and so on and so forth. We all know what it means. Uh, when you talk about the cosmos and so on, are you uh, inviting us to think that there is something sacred about love? I'm certainly inviting you to dig deeper beyond the kind of analytics which we sort of all know, which are interesting. So deeper, sacred, yeah, these are words, you know, blunt instruments. But yeah, I'm getting at something, the ineffable. I think you can't get away from it if you mm. dig deeper. Now, religions have all tried to kind of, you know, quantify and solidify, and we could have a whole years of debate about that. Let's not go there. But, but they're, they're all attempts to define this incredible thing that exists, that we're all you know, we come up against in, in having consciousness, basically. And the heart, I believe, is, uh, and this is also being understood now, is an intel highly intelligent, it has in brain cells, practically. So we must talk about the heart and mind together, as I say. Mm. Okay. Um, doesn't sound like a lot of that would fit with what you were saying about the finite, the ethical, or sounds very serious, shall I? Know, I I'm so boring. <laughs> I think love is finite and ethical. Um, but I, I guess I, I'm, I'm, it's, it's because love is miraculous in the way that you describe Martha, that it is powerful and why we have to harness it and think about it and make it work in an ethical realm. I think that's why it's, that's why, that's what, what gives it its power. But I do think love is finite actually in a, in a stranger because I think um, this is Derrida, right? This is what Derrida says. He says that loss is love's burden. And it's, what he means by that is that at one point, one or other of us will die and the other person will be left alone. And love is not the same when the other person is not there. But when you choose to love, not just fall wildly, heedlessly in love, when you choose to love, you commit to the possibility that the person you love will die. So love means accepting the finiteness of this miraculous thing that you have. I know the infinite is so alluring and seductive, but finite things are precious, really precious. And I say that, but also I have so many hesitations about describing love as transcendent, because as philosophers, we know that things that are transcendent, that are absolute or truths, are also susceptible to be tyrannous. And the ideas of absolute love are tyrannous. You know, we, we, we hurt ourselves in the pursuit of an idea of absolute love. And this finite idea of love, I think, is much more workable and kinder and profound. Those kind of narratives that we have about love, we have famous uh, you know, narratives, like Romeo and Juliet, I guess, would be one of the most obvious ones. But not just that, we have um, kind of much more ordinary one, you know, think of Bridget Jones, if we lower the tone a little bit. Uh, you know, we do. Like uh, we, <laughs> he likes Bridget Jones, that's fine. We can come back to that. Was that one of the reasons for the divorce? <laughs> Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to iai.tv for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses and live events. Are you bored of the surface level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper, get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. It's free for the first month. And there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. <laughs> well, I guess what, I'm, try what we, I'm, I'm going to ask you to sort of comment on is whether these stories that we have in our, you know, which proliferate everywhere, you know, in movies, rom-coms, 
love stories, Mills and Boone, classic stories, whether those are literally that, just narratives, whether they have uh, any kind of bearing on our lives in any way, or whether they're actually corrupting in a way, because we, we end up in a relationship where we're trying to emulate whatever it might be, whether it's Romeo and Juliet, although, of course, that is a tragedy we should remind ourselves. Are those stories helpful or not, Martha? Well, it's true what you say, of course, it is everywhere, every opera, every pop song, every, it is so, in, in, in culture, and in historically in culture, it proliferates, so um, there is this kind of urge that we all have towards this thing, and I think they can be corrupting, but, um, and there is this idea of the numinous, isn't it? We chase this thing of the meaning it has in our minds, in our complex, and then there's the actual living out of it. Um, so I think that you can, you can definitely get yourself all snarled up with having, thinking that uh, the, 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 white, the guy on the white charger, definitely. And, but you're, you know, the, the life experience is, is, is where we take the greatest meaning, is the actual enacting out of what that, that truth is. But of course, by the way, of course, I, I passionately believe that art and culture are completely essential there as, as the body needs nutrition, the soul complex needs and feeds off archetype, which is embodied in, in all that expression. It's interesting. I mean, you see lots of couples obviously in Relate, don't you, uh, married or otherwise. I wonder to what extent is that a theme for those couples, that they have an ideal of what the relationship should be, derived not necessarily from a given story, but from this sort of uh, myth or uh, romanticism of what love stories should be, and then they, they sort of fail to live up to that. Is that it? Do you see that as a theme there? I, th I think there's an element of that, actually. You know, when we poll the general population about what's the greatest strains on relationships, what comes back is money worries is the number one issue. Mm. Uh, uh, and, you know, affairs and, and lack of trust being up in the top three. Um, but actually what our therapists say, and we have 1,700 of them across the country, is that the biggest issue they see is about breakdown of communication, not understanding each other being the issue. And, and I think this sort of point, what was going through my mind with what Martha was saying, was that today uh, we have such high expectations of our relationships. You know, in a way, we've actually lived through a huge revolution in how we organise, find and end our relationships. You know, 50 years ago, if you weren't married, by the time you were 25, you were a spinster. You know, most people were married and you stayed married. And this language of working at your relationship is a very modern set of language. That never used to happen. And even this idea of romantic love was very much, I think, in the, in, you know, the 19th century, the 18th century, the preserve of the upper classes. You know, it was a, a class-based analogy there as well. So I think we are living through really interesting times. But the challenge for that is how we navigate our way through it. Because we don't have a roadmap. You know, I am living a different set of relationships to my parents who got married because my grandmother, my, my grandmother was much older when she had my mother, expected my parents to get married, even though they didn't want to. But they did that because they were conforming to that set of types. So I think what we see is about these kinds of norms that we've been, we've taken from previous generations, people are finding new ways around those and finding new ways to communicate with their partner around them. And, and I think the last thing I want to make here is about this expectation, is that there's a question for us. Do we expect too much from that other person? We expect them to be great in bed, a great communicator, our best friend, everything to us. You know, can we get that from one other person? And I think when thinking about this is start with what you want, 
what you don't want, what's important to you, and how you communicate that with somebody else. So our work is very much about trying to get people to talk about what they want and their expectations in that dynamic of a couple, but starting with what's right for them as an individual. So relationships are about disappointing the other person at a rate they can tolerate. <laughs> I see that you're coming from a very much more of a pessimistic side. As an eternal optimist here, you know, I, I think it's about, about you know, my, my friend Maria says that she has met Mr. Right many times, but she wasn't right ready to meet Mr. Right until she met her husband of today. And I think there is something about starting with yourself, where you are. I think there is a piece of self-discovery before you discover the joy and beauty beauty of a relationship with another person. You know, we have in that, that sort of thing, that narrative in our media about, you know, making the same mistakes in relationships. There is something about reflecting on what you learned from that previous relationship, where you can take some skills and experience to take into a new relationship. It's that learning and growing from the experience because, you know, entwining your life with somebody brings huge richness, huge benefit, huge joy, huge pleasure. But you learn something new about yourself through that dynamic that you may not have known before. And that can make you a better person overall. I really want to sort of nail this question. Maybe you can help me with it, Shida. I mean, despite what Chris says, I have a sense that a lot of people begin relationships with this sense of, you know, what it should be. You know, inherited consciously or unconsciously from all sorts of, you know, the kind of yeah. myths and stories and narratives out there. And that in some sense, they're then trying to fit that relationship to that ideal. Do you buy that? I was, I'm a lecturer in romanticism, so I'm supposed to believe in the literature, right? One of the places that we learn about ourselves, we work on ourselves, is art. It does something to your heart. You're right, the heart is an organ that thinks. You learn amplitude. You learn about heartbreak. Actually, James Baldwin says this. He says, you think your pain and your heartbreak are unprecedented in the world, and then you read. That's what he says. Isn't that fantastic? Just read James Baldwin. Don't listen to us. Just read James Baldwin. But um, yeah, so, so art is sucker. It's nourishment. But it's also deception. And I was thinking of um, Loveless, the Cavalier poet, 1690, um, to Lacaster on going to the wars. And he's about to leave his, the bosomy pillow of his lover, Lacaster, to go to the wars. He's actually in prison. But he says at the end of the poem, I could not love thee, dear, so much loved I not honour more. Which is just heart, just swooningly wonderful, except it's terrible. He's telling her, it's really beautiful, so I could not love thee, dear, in brackets, in parenthesis, because it's a, a really tender term of endearment, private for her. And then everything hangs on the so, I could not love thee, dear, so much. Because so is such a small word, and it means the world but he is telling her that love is better more profound that I honor my country over you and he's going to leave her I could not love thee dear so much loved I not honor more and it's wrong right you don't love a woman by leaving her for the wars so there is something really erroneous fallacious damaging about some of these narratives too I could not love thee dear so much loved I not honor more love me don't love honor love me Okay, I'll, I think I'll accept that. It <laughs> wasn't bad. Okay, I'm going to move us on to the last sort of theme uh, of the debate. We touched a little bit on this earlier about technology and matchmaking and so on, and the idea of actually being a able to engineer love. And, you know, I wanted to come back to the comment you made earlier about, you know, we can choose. I can't remember exactly what you said. I think you, we can choose who to love or choose to love or whatever it might be. Can you pick up 
on that theme then and start with that. Is that I, really true? We can sort of make it happen? No, I think, no, I don't think that. I think that we fall, I, well, I can only speak from, all of us can only speak from experience, that you fall wildly, heedlessly, stupidly in love with foolish people. Um, and sometimes people who are not your equal, but you love them. But despite that, I think that you can choose to, to be with someone. There's an act of will. You can be wildly in love with someone, but you can also consciously will yourself to be in a relationship and to commit yourself to the care of another person. And I think that version of love, I'm talking from experience now, that version of love is profound and life-changing when you will to love the person you're also wildly in love with. That's magical, and I hope that some of you, all of you, have that in your life. There's an idea that I think that there's an unpredictability in love, which all these apps now remove the unpredictability, that there's an algorithm that you outsource love to, and it, will, and it takes up some of the hazard of love. And I think one of the powers of love is that you cannot predict the circumstances in which it will be done or undone. And that is part of its enormous power. At the same time, as I've been saying, I think it's incumbent on us to engineer love, to understand love as a concept that exists beyond our relationships as an ethical form of relation. So I think you know, love is unpredictable, that's its power, but it's also our obligation to understand and engineer love as a principle beyond our own relationships. Ever willed yourself into love, Martha? I think it's a very, not actively, not, a, not at, the, at the rational mind level, no, but definitely at the irrational mind level. <laughs> <laughs> Whether that's a willing, I'm not sure. It's a falling, that's why it's an interesting use of the word. I also slightly believe in destiny. I think that this idea that you think you've got this huge, vast choice, dating sites, all the technology that gives us that, you think it's a random act. I actually don't think so. I've, I've come to the belief that there is a pull towards a person and you find that person. You actually probably don't even need dating sites to find them. I'm not even sure how successful they are ultimately. Mm -hmm. um, in those, Chris, in those relationships that you've, or your therapist uh, sort of cadre come across, how often is that the case, that relationships have broken down because people have just tried too hard or tried to will themselves into the relationship, to use Shahida's term, and, and that's one of the reasons. It wasn't real, it was just, there was just too much sort of jimmying together of the relationship in the first place. Is that a theme? I, I think there's a theme there around those issues that have been present in the relationship not being tackled, you know, the elephants in the room type metaphor, and that they're left to fester and they get more difficult. And by the time somebody is seeking support, they are big issues. Um, I, I probably am in a slightly different place to Martha in terms of, of fate and destiny, in terms of, of relationships. I, I also think that we, we need to think about this debate through the life course, you know, um, we, we want different things at different stages of our life. I mean, I'm going to lower the tone, um, but you know, I listened to Kim Cantrell when she edited Women's Hour, and she talked about being in her late 50s and not wanting to have a man living in the same house with her anymore. She wanted to have you know, uh, intimacy, she wanted to have emotional intimacy, she wanted to have sex with the men, but she didn't want to be washing someone's socks and washing their smalls in her house. She wanted a different type of relationship at that stage of her life. And I think we have to think about it through the life course, that we want different things at different stages of our life because we change, you know, and we, we become uh, different. And the point that I did agree with Martha on is about the sort of irrational uh, aspect of love. I mean, I certainly have fell through that. And I'm, I probably am personally more on the sort of, oh, he's the right one kind of stage, you know, a little bit. I've learned to sort of move away from that. But I think we do make those choices. But I think, 
you know, the last point I wanted to make is that we, we do know that when we grow the most is when we feel discomforted, when we feel uncomfortable. And I think part of that is the experience of, of love. I'm afraid that the dating apps do work. We know that fourth, uh, the fourth most common way of people to meet people in the UK is online. And one in three marriages in America today are as a result of people meeting online. So technology is opening up the village to bigger choice. A dating app isn't quite the same as making yourself fall in love. It's not engineering, it's facilitating, not engineering it. I don't think you can, you know, uh, force yourself, you know, into love with somebody. I think there has to be chemistry and a spark there. There has to be attraction. But I think the, the point I was making is that, that that dating aspect, the joy around that, is one chapter in the story of love. And we almost fetishize that aspect of relationships, the newness. And one of the challenges around technology is it focuses on the immediate reaction, the kind of, the, the, the kind of buzz that you get from going through Tinder and swiping or through Grindr or Scruff or whatever dating app you're using. What we don't fetishize or celebrate is the experience of being through the life, you know, that long-term relationship. We don't celebrate the joy that happens there as you go through that journey through life with somebody else or whether you're doing that with different people. It's that, you know, we need to celebrate not just the dating aspect of relationships, we need to celebrate the whole aspect of relationships. We do need to nurture our relationships. We do need to invest in them. We spend a lot of money on going to the gym. We spend a lot of time going to the gym. We spend a lot of time in investing in how we look. How much time do we actually spend on investing in our relationship with that other person? Thank you very much. If you could just join me in thanking our brilliant panellists, Martha, Chris and Sahil. We hope you enjoyed this podcast, which was brought to you by the Institute of Art and Ideas. So what do you think? Is love cosmic? Or is it something to be worked on? Do let us know by tweeting at IAI underscore TV with the hashtag philosophy for our times and don't forget to subscribe on soundcloud itunes or stitcher <laughs>